Hey everyone, this is Lucas Banyo, an investor at Village Global, and I'm here with my co-host Ian Cinnamon. Welcome to SolarPunk. In this podcast, we cover topics related to space and defense and discuss how technology can contribute to a better and safer world. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Village Global Solar Punk. We could not be more excited to have Jacob Holberg today with us on the show. Jacob is a senior advisor at the Stanford University Center on Geopolitics and Technology and an adjunct fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where he authored a best-selling book on technology policy, China, and U.S. national security called The Wires of War, Technology and the Global Struggle for Power. Holberg is also the co-chair of the Brookings Institution China Strategy Initiative. From 2016 to 2020, Holberg led Google's internal global product policy efforts to combat disinformation and foreign interference, including policy and enforcement processes against state-backed foreign interference, misinformation, and actors undermining election integrity. And now, on to the show. Jacob, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Jacob, we thought that we we're going to talk about today a lot about influence, especially as it relates to the CCP and the past and present and future of our relationship with China. And to kind of kick us off, we thought I would ask you, you know, you talked a lot about how the mentality around foreign policy and how foreign policy relates to the economy broadly has shifted from the Cold War to now. Can you dive deeper into what happened and why does that matter? Absolutely. So at the end of the Cold War, U.S. foreign policy increasingly decoupled economics from politics. There was this peace through through trade theory championed in part by people like Tom Friedman that world peace would be achieved through world trade and that trade would ultimately liberalize and democratize countries like China. There was a heated debate about this in 2000 when the U.S. granted China most favored nation status under U.S. law and brought China into the WTO. And in the early 2010s, we had a very similar idea about the Internet. We thought that the Internet was also a force for liberalization. Both of these theories came crashing down starting in the latter half of the 2010s, particularly uh, 2016 onwards, when it became abundantly clear that the country had undergone an unprecedented deindustrialization that China was only growing more authoritarian and that the internet could also be used as a force of political control. So peace through trade, in my view, will go down in history as the greatest single foreign policy miscalculation in American history. It fueled the rise of an adversary, the likes of which our country has never faced. And can you dive deeper into, you know, how big the the threat is that we're facing today? Why is uh, the CCP the, the, the perhaps the biggest threat that America has ever faced? I would draw a distinction between threats uh, to American interests and threats to American power. China is the single greatest threat to American power and is therefore the single greatest threat to the U.S. and the values that the U.S. has been championing for the last 75 years. As NATO's general, Secretary General said not too long ago, Ukraine, for example, isn't just about Russia, it's also about China. The public takes China very, very seriously. And I've been incredibly encouraged to actually see uh, a mood change in Washington in our policymaking community. Public polling after public polling shows that 
the public is there. Uh, Capitol Hill tends to be very responsive to public opinion, so lawmakers are quickly catching up. The executive branch, however, is always a bit slower. And you know, the so-called blob, the class of technocratic you know, folks that work in the government is very resistant to change. And historically, the Treasury and the Commerce Department are almost always very, very dovish on China, regardless of what party's in power. So the most recent example of this is, uh, for instance, Janet Yellen lobbying President Biden to remove the China tariffs, which would completely squander a once in a lifetime opportunity we currently have to reshore our supply chains outside of China. So that's a great transition, Jacob, into talking a little bit more about the commercial side of things. So great overview of the government side. Help us understand how U.S. companies have thought both in the past and in the present about working with China, about both outsourcing things to China, uh, operating in China, et cetera. And how do you see that evolving over time? If, uh, if I could provide a little bit of framing at a high level... Uh, companies' policies, like a country's laws, reflect its most basic values. And so the problem today is that companies that are based in the United States, but that are also operating in China, are struggling to comply with values that are fundamentally at odds. In the U.S. system, we think laws are legitimate insofar as they're conceived by what Jean-Jacques Rousseau called the general will of the people, expressed through the workings of a democratic political system. Laws that are arbitrary or imposed by the will of a single person of authority are viewed by Americans and people in democratic countries as illegitimate. Yet, on the other hand, you have in the Chinese system, a system that rests on the idea that the sole source of legitimacy is the CCP, which represents uh, as it claims, the will of the Chinese nation in its entirety and violently suppresses challenges to its authorities. So tech companies confront this tension um, when they're asked to comply, and companies generally that try to straddle both sides of the fence um, uh, confront this tension when they're at when they're tasked to comply with Chinese laws by enabling the arrest of dissidents for you know so-called sub- subversions of state power or the mass surveillance of Uyghurs. Uh, which are rightfully viewed by most Americans as immoral and illegitimate. The natural response of a lot of these companies, uh, you know, that whose fiduciary responsibility is to maximize profits by operating in the world's two largest markets is to try to straddle this divide. So the doctrine that has prevailed in uh, much of corporate America until very recently has been, you know, what, what someone might call and what I've referred to in the past as a one company, two systems uh, doctrine. Uh, That doctrine will, without a doubt, increasingly become unsustainable for a lot of companies. And I think you're already seeing that today, particularly companies in sensitive tech areas. Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we saw how difficult it is for Europe to suddenly reverse decades of trade policy with Russia in the area of energy. And the takeaway for us is that a Chinese invasion of Taiwan would prompt the very same existential questions about America's reliance on Chinese supply chains as Europe's reliance on Russian energy. And so uh, I believe the debate is uh, invariably headed towards uh, more conversations about decoupling, 
particularly as the US and China are increasingly, increasingly risk being on a collision course in the South China Sea. So, Jacob, to be very specific then, what advice would you have for companies that are operating in this duality? Can they suddenly, like, as you said, they're kind of straddling this line. How does that evolve over time? Like, how do you see it falling out for a lot of them? And what action can these companies be taking now uh, to prevent that future fallout? Absolutely. So uh, that's actually a great question. And I'm happy you, you bring that up. Companies generally have spent billions of dollars in, in CapEx, you know, over the last 20 or 22 years since China's been in the WTO, uh, building out an enormous amount of infrastructure in China. Making changes to that and reversing that is going to be uh, costly. It's going to cost a lot of money. And in some cases, it might even be painful in the short term. With that being said, uh, I think the question is for companies that are sensitive to national security, particularly tech companies, the question is, isn't, is decoupling going to happen? The question is, is it going to, are, are we going to do it proactively or are we going to do it reactively? Is Apple going to proactively move its supply chains outside of China in order to protect its operations uh, in the event of uh, a standoff in the South China Sea? Or is it going to do so reactively once a crisis materializes and the Chinese government all of a sudden starts interfering with Apple's ability to access its supply chains in China to make iPhones? Um, and so I think the answer is a reactive approach would be substantially more painful and far more destructive economically uh, for the country and for American companies than a proactive approach where we can uh, undertake a decoupling intelligently, deliberately, and strategically. And so I would highly encourage technology companies and companies that are sensitive to national security to proactively work right now to decouple themselves away from the Chinese market. No one is expecting them to reshore everything to the United States, but we are expecting them to reshore outside of China. That could be Vietnam, that could be India. It's a very big world out there. And you know, there's a very large market to be had outside of China. So surely there's other countries where this can take place. And so for a company, for a company the size of Apple, right, with a steady business, we're already seeing them start to do that opening factories in different countries and start to diversify that. But for companies that might be still sensitive companies, to your point, who don't have the money to do that, and it would fundamentally hurt their business. Or for example, public companies where, you know, in today's markets, if you say, hey, unfortunately, uh, we're going to have lower income this quarter because we're spending that money to open a factory here, do something there. They take a big nosedive. How do you reconcile that with the company's mission to still have to maximize shareholder return, yet they're judged on a shorter time horizon where they might not be able to kind of take those actions? Well, let's remember that in SEC filings, companies are also required to disclose substantial risks to their operations. And I would argue that having operations in the countries, you know, in America's foremost geopolitical adversary that, you know, we could potentially find ourselves embroiled in, uh, you know, a military standoff with does amount to a substantial risk to their operations. So 
you know, I think that there is a lot of easy things that the U.S. government could do to help create market incentives for the private sector to move this along faster. You know, tweaking SEC rules to uh, require companies to be more transparent about their operations, about the scope and breadth and depth of their operations in China, and the way that that poses a risk to their operations, I think is one. The second, quite frankly, I think the private sector can actually be very smart about how to make decisions that make sense for their company. I think the government can play a constructive role in shaping the macro environment. And so to do that, uh, I think actually having a very simple levying very high tariffs on China, while at the same time uh, lowering trade barriers with other friendly countries is a very simple rule and a very easy way to create a market environment that makes it far more expensive to do business with China and less expensive to do business with everyone else. And so if the government takes a few simple steps, uh, like the ones I just mentioned, I think it could actually help go a long way to incentivize that reshaping of American trade. And Jacob, so we're talking a lot about companies as it, as it relates to China. To, to dive deeper on financial influence uh, as it relates to the CCP, I know you've been very involved on efforts related to CFIUS. Um, can you define what uh, CFIUS is and what are the changes that are that are happening there? Sure. So um, CFIUS is the Committee on Foreign Investments in the United States. Um, it is a framework that we have in the United States that provides the U.S. government with the authority to review and restrict foreign investments in the U.S. on grounds of national security. In the 2000s, some might remember that CFIUS stepped in to prevent uh, foreign uh, buyers from the, the Persian Gulf to purchase American ports out of concerns uh, that that might you know create risks for potential non-state actors to be able to access those ports more easily um and so um and so you know, other examples in the tech industry include Sidious stepping in to force the divestment of grinder after grinder was acquired by a chinese by chinese buyers for those that aren't familiar grinder is a uh, basically a gay hookup app that a lot of users around the world actually um, engage with and you know it used to engage with in a lot of sensitive intimate interactions that include a lot of you know just like uh, just like other dating apps uh, a lot of uh, intimate information that uh, could potentially be compromising for someone that has security clearances and the like. We don't currently have a framework for American investments outbound into China. So there are some holes that we have in the current architecture of CFIUS. The first is that it's mostly voluntary. So if a company is considering taking money from Chinese buyers, uh, from, from Chinese investors, it, it they're reporting uh, that you know of that transaction to CFIUS happens on an entirely voluntary basis. So CFIUS remains very reactive and only sees a very small fraction of these transactions that take place in the US. And the second is that we have no framework to restrict American investments into China. Uh, we have a separation in our country between our private and public sector. China doesn't have that. 
So uh, when our companies invest in China or when China invests in our tech companies, it almost always benefits the CCP and disadvantages the US government. So my view is simple. The United States should not be funding both sides of the tech race with China. The way to stop that is by restricting US investments in China, as well as Chinese investments in the US. We can't and shouldn't fuse our private companies with the US government, but we can and should prevent our private companies from fusing with the Chinese government. The reason everyday people should care about outbound American investments in China is that it poses, I believe, a systemic risk to our economy. Think of what the impact might be if just one company, say Apple, unexpectedly lost access to its iPhone production lines in China. Apple's valued between two and three trillion dollars. The top four US mutual funds have well over $100 billion invested in that company. Apple also employs directly and indirectly more than 2 million Americans spread out across the, every state in this country. Now imagine that effect spread out across multiple large companies. Bear Stearns would be like small potatoes compared to the fallout uh, of, of what would ensue if, uh, if, if China were to cut off our access to uh, our supply chains there. Correct me if I'm wrong, but as, as it sits today, CFIUS uh, reports to the Treasury Department, right? Uh, and do you think that we're able to, to make the changes required uh, to, to do everything that you said a, as it is today? Or do we need other changes to CFIUS and congressional changes as well? There are changes that can be made without changing laws and then changes that will have to come about with legislative changes by Congress. With respect to the, the, the former, changes that can be made without changing laws, leadership starts at the very top. And so the Secretary of the Treasury is appointed by the president. Uh, if we have a president who makes this his or her number one priority or one of his or her's top priorities uh, to have a Treasury Secretary that will actually be a champion at Treasury for having uh, a bold, aggressive CFIUS, that will actually already go a very, very long way into giving CFIUS a lot more teeth in uh, our current investment climate. With respect to expanding the purview of uh, CFIUS's remit, it'll have to come from Congress. And it's very possible that Congress already expanded CFIUS's uh, remit in 2018. I think it could potentially happen again in the next Congress. Uh, and actually, the current uh, China bill, you know, quote unquote, that's currently in Congress that's focused on investing, making domestic investments in uh, the production of semiconductors also includes provisions you know, that are being referred to as the Casey Cornyn bill, which is bipartisan, to restrict uh, American investments into China. So already there is legislation making its way through the halls of Congress that will actually give the U.S. government new tools to uh, put in restrictions on an increased public scrutiny on American investments outbound into China. So to answer your first question, um, I think, you know, the U.S., the, the president and the secretary of treasury have a lot of tools to work with already. 
but ultimately Congress should, and I think, you know, is, is in the process, has the appetite to also uh, do a lot of work on the legislative front to make structural changes. And how do you think about making changes to um, potentially restrict Chinese investments into U.S. companies? Or what do you think we should be doing uh, to better handle that situation? Well, I think restricting Chinese investments in U.S. companies is exactly what would be the result of, um, of you know, expanding CFIUS. Um, if the problem right now, you know, as I mentioned earlier, is CFIUS is voluntary. So one tweak, for example, is... If you put in, you could put in a notification requirement where if every chi- if every investment from China into the U.S. has to be flagged to the Department of the Treasury, even if it doesn't necessarily have to undergo you know, approval, but if it just has to be flagged, that at least gives the U.S. government the opportunity to review it and step in uh, to potentially... stop that transaction from taking place if it's sensitive to national security. So, you know, I think there is a world where it's not you either have a totally open door policy or you force every single transaction uh, to obtain prior approval by the U.S. government. I think there is a world where you um, continue to have a middle of the road approach where transactions can take place, but they have to be flagged so that the government's aware of them. Uh, when they involve the CCP, it's also One worth noting. You- though, it's also worth noting before people say, you know, oh, Jacob Hallberg is such a China hawk. The Chinese government is aggressively pursuing decoupling from us. And now, if you want, to, if you're a CCP official, and if you want to get promoted, you're not allowed to own foreign assets. Uh, you know, a new rule brought to you mm-hmm. by Xi Jinping which is post the invasion of Ukraine. The invasion of Ukraine has convinced Xi Jinping and the CCP that it is has become a number one priority to limit their exposures to what they view as being the tentacles of US power and the ability of the US to essentially um, you know, hold Chinese officials hostage you know, through sanctions and so forth. So they view decoupling as a high priority and, you know, we should read the tea leaves about the fact that it, the reason they view it as a high priority is because they have a point. It's it's important for them. It's important for us, too. And we should do the work of doing it for ourselves. I, I think that's a great point. So you, you mentioned as part of that, though, around this idea of um, uh, potential investments that might affect U.S. national security. That can be taken as relatively broad, right? So I think, you know, Lucas and I at Village Global, we make a lot of investments. You could argue that even for the investments that aren't directly selling to the U.S. government or doing things that directly affect national security, a lot of the companies that we do help bolster up uh, the West or American values or or things in that regard, even if they're not directly selling to government. So uh, first question is, how do you think about what it means to be a company or an investment that might be supporting U.S. national security? And then the second part of it is, when we're thinking about uh, investments from China into U.S. companies, there's a lot of ways that could happen, right? It could be a direct investment into a company. It could be uh, a Chinese investor being an LP in a venture fund that then invests in a company that might be uh, critical to national security. Like It can be many, many levels deep. So I'm curious how you think about where do we draw a line and should, for example, uh, general partners at funds be uh, taking a deep dive into who their LPs are, where the LP money comes from, and so on. 
Yeah, great questions. So I think you highlight the very salient point that what amounts a technology that's relevant to national security? The narrow definition of that would be, for example, a company that is purely defense tech, you know, like Andrew Ill or Palantir. The more expansive definition, which is a definition that I strongly subscribe to, uh, would encompass any technology that is, you know, what people in the military world called dual use technology. Dual use technologies are commercial technologies built for civilian commercial use, but that also have potential applications in, you know, what people call strategic or military ways. I would strongly argue that dual use tech, any dual use technology would absolutely count as relevant to national security. And that's how the government defines it. So the government doesn't have the narrow definition. They view, you know, sensitive technologies as encompassing dual use technologies generally. Um, that's why you had CFIUS that actually stepped in to force the divestment of a social platform like Grindr. You know, they thought Grindr was relevant to national security, um, not because they cared about members of the LGBTQ community uh, dating on Grindr, but because they cared about uh, what might happen to sensitive user data if all of a sudden the, the companies uh, started being responsive to information requests by the Chinese government. So I would adopt the, the much more expansive view. Let's look at how China approaches US investors and US companies. If you are a, uh, an, an American investor or an American company, every single investment you make in China has to be through a joint venture where you are going to be a minority stakeholder. If you're a Chinese citizen, every single business transaction you do with the US comes under the scrutiny of the CCP and, and, and the approval of the CCP. The reason is because the CCP views us as an adversary as much as you know, we view them as an adversary. Historically, how have we approached doing business with great powers that we consider to be adversaries? The Soviet Union, we didn't do any trade with them at all. So there was no connective tissue there. The you know, Nazi Germany, we actually had a lot of trade ties with Nazi Germany, and there was a very strong lobby, you know, business lobby in the US to preserve trade ties with Nazi Germany. IBM infamously was part of that lobby. At the end of the day, when World War II broke out, the US Congress basically forced American businesses to divest from Nazi Germany because they saw that as posing a risk to national security. So historically, the way that we have approached it is by basically completely restricting trade with countries that we view as posing an existential risk to our security. And that is basically how China treats us. So I think, you know, when you ask about how many levels deep we should, um, restrictions should apply to, I think the, the best having written policies at a tech company, you know, and having seen how policies can be enforced, I think the simplest rules are often the best rules. When rules get too complicated, they're, they become very costly and hard to enforce. And I think the rules of the road for how we should engage with China is actually very simple. It's that 
we should not be funding both sides of the tech race. We should, uh, the government should have the ability and broad powers to restrict trade with China uh, when national security is at stake. And so I think the, the onus is on the business community to do proper due diligence uh, and not take money from, from Chinese LPs. Um, and Jacob, I, I just want to highlight the point that you just made, which is, you know, a lot of times people are like, oh, my God, you want to ban TikTok or, you know, you want to impose all of these restrictions on Chinese investors. You're such a China hawk. But a lot of what we're saying here is, hey, like, let's just simply impose a lot of the restrictions that we as the U.S. have already had to deal with as regards to China for the last 20 years. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. And by the way, uh, the reason we find ourselves in this situation today is because we agreed to 22 years ago when China was admitted into, into the WTO to a very, very one-sided deal. They can review and restrict everything that we export to them, and uh, they can export anything, basically anything that they want to us. And that was kind of the deal. And revisiting that is obviously very, very hard under the auspices of the WTO. But nevertheless, you know, countries are sovereign and the WTO uh, is a voluntary organization. And so I think it's very healthy that you're seeing American policymakers basically taking the initiative to revisit a lot of the terms of trade that we have with China. Right. Jacob, shifting gears a little bit uh, in talking a little bit less about, you know, China versus the U.S., but, you know, in more about China's influence globally, uh, we thought that we'll talk uh, with you about the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, so can you impact what the Belt and Road Initiative is, how big and important it is, and how successful it's been to date, and why should people care to learn about it? Sure. So the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, which you know is a term reminiscent of the Silk Road, is a massive infrastructure project that would stretch from East Asia all the way to Europe. Um, to date, there is over 60 countries accounting for two thirds of the world's population that have signed on to projects or, or indicated an interest in doing so uh, under the Belt and Road Initiative. And the best way to track the, the size and scope of the BRI is by looking at countries that are the biggest recipients of Chinese foreign direct investments. So, so far, you know, there, as much as there's been 60 countries that have, you know, expressed an interest or signed on to projects, uh, a far fewer number of countries have actually taken in meaningful uh, foreign direct investments from China. The biggest recipients so far have been Myanmar, the Central Asian stand countries, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Nepal, and South Africa. With that being said, the Belt and Road Initiative has rightfully earned a reputation for being a debt trap. China doesn't publish its records on uh, the records of its foreign you know, loans to countries. And the vast majority of its contracts contain non-disclosure clauses, which prevents borrowers from revealing their contents. But China often, very often lends money to these countries under BRI, which end up having to cede control of key assets if they can't meet their debt repayments. And so, you know, the canonical example of this was Sri Lanka a few years ago embarked on this massive port project with Chinese investments 
uh, and the multi-billion dollar project using loans and contractors from China became completely marred in controversy and um, ultimately left Sri Lanka saddled with debts. Um, so it's, uh, I think a lot of countries have, uh, you know, looked at that and concluded that they should rightfully be far more reluctant to accept uh, money from, you know, China's Belt and Road initiatives. So can you dig a little bit deeper onto kind of these infrastructure uh, investments that you were just alluding to? And what do you think the long-term game is there for China, like or for the CCP? How are they thinking about this if you fast forward 10, 15 years? China has um, positioned itself to date as the world's factory floor, uh, which has been an incredible, uh, an incredibly beneficial position for themselves in the world economy. They you know, see a number of different dynamics at work for them domestically. The cost of production in China is rising. The Belt and Road Initiative is basically about regional economic integration, you know, to create a world trading system with China at the very center. Um, And it's also about creating, you know, this vast uh, transportation and communication network that will ultimately be the backbone for potential Chinese strategic assets around the world, you know, potentially military bases, uh, potentially, you know, new uh, alliances or partners. Ultimately, what China, you know, we saw that with China opening a military base in Djibouti. We, uh, we know that China has a, its sights set on Tanzania, Cambodia, and the UAE are all on China's wish, wish list. And we saw that, you know, China is trying to basically leverage that strategy in the Pacific by trying to get 10 out of the 14 island nations in the Pacific to sign on to this, you know, economic and security pact with China, which thankfully has not worked so far. So, I, you know, this is really about economic integration, but ultimately the long-term game here is about political integration with China. The more economically integrated these countries are with China, the harder it will be for China, for these countries to resist China politically. Right. And Jacob, can you dig deeper uh, into what's the current state of influence that the CCP has over, you know, Africa and Asia, but also countries like Hungary and Greece in, in Europe? And how, how concerned should we be about those? So on the, the economic front, I mean, I would draw the distinction between economic influence and political influence. On the economic front, China is extremely influential because it's the world's factory floor. And so therefore, the result is that the vast majority of uh, countries in Eurasia and, you know, and certainly in Asia and and Sub-Saharan Africa trade more with China than they do with the U.S. today because China makes everything for the rest of the world. Um, On the political front, China's influence in Africa is, especially Sub-Saharan Africa, is substantial, but it's actually more limited in, in its immediate neighborhood in East Asia where a lot of China's neighbors are actually very concerned about China's intentions and China's recent behavior. So the more aggressive Xi Jinping becomes and the more Xi Jinping embraces warrior wolf diplomacy, 
the more he's actually creating an incentive for uh, countries to start being concerned with uh, their own economic reliance on China. And you kind of see that with, for example, Japan is, you know, since the start of the pandemic has started paying its companies to reshore outside of China because they understand that you can't divorce economics from politics. You can't, you know, have China as your number one trade partner and then not be concerned at all of what might happen if China is a you know, political adversary. And so ultimately, China's behavior in the political sphere, I think, is, is in the process of potentially jeopardizing the central position it currently holds in the economic sphere. So given all of this, do you think the U.S. should be doing something similar to what you just stated Japan is doing? Like, what, what should our reaction to the Belt and Road Initiative be here? And like, how, how do we essentially compete, for lack of a better word? I think the most important thing that the U.S. can do to undercut the Belt and Road Initiative is to force our own companies to reshore outside of China. With China, all roads lead back to manufacturing. The entire BRI initiative is predicated on the assumption of China being, you know, the central manufacturing hub for the globe. And so if China no longer hold that, holds that position, it eliminates the utility for massive railways to and from China's factories, as well as China's chokehold over natural resources. The only reason China is so deeply embedded in sub-Saharan Africa is because they need raw materials for to manufacture, uh, to produce manufactured goods in their factories to export everywhere else around the world. If you move those factories outside of China, all of a sudden they don't have the industrial engine uh, that they currently have in, to justify their presence in Africa, uh, nor do they have the trade surpluses that they're currently using to fund a lot of these BRI projects. So. Um, if we force our companies and encourage other countries to reshore their manufacturing supply chains outside of China, that is an enormous blow to China's global ambitions and, uh, and to its Belt and Road Initiative. Right. And Jacob, beyond financial and political influence, another form of influence is also psychological, right, with propaganda. And when the CCP gives out a lot of the telecom infrastructure to these countries in Africa, uh, that comes with, with strings attached on what kind of information and channels the population can get access to. Um, I was curious if you could talk a little bit more about that as well and what the CCP is doing from a propaganda perspective across the world to uh, uh, you know, uh, further its influence. Sure. So the prime example of this is, is, of course, Huawei. The CIA found that the Chinese government uh, reportedly subsidized Huawei to the tune of at least $75 billion, uh, not out of political philanthropy, but because China sees very real strategic and political benefits to subsidizing you know, hardware telecommunication infrastructure. Uh, the CCP can use its control over the backend infrastructure of communication systems like Huawei to extract, delete, block, and manipulate any data that sits on top of that network. This was actually corroborated by a study by a uh, Dutch telecommunications company called KPN that basically found that Huawei had access to the content of every single piece of information that flowed through the Huawei 
network, including text messages by members of the Dutch parliament, uh, you name it. So ultimately, this really raises the question of if you're a country that is thinking about taking in Chinese telecommunications infrastructure, you should ask yourself, what will happen if a government official in Beijing knows the entire medical and personal history of every politician, every judge, and every journalist in your country, including all their sexual escapades, all their, all their mental weaknesses, and all their corrupt dealings? Will your country be a sovereign country, or will it be a satellite state controlled by China? And I would argue that fundamentally what China is doing with Huawei and, and telecom infrastructure is that they're using 21st century tools to recreate 20th century style spheres of influence. And to double click on something that you said a couple of minutes ago, uh, you know, that's very timely right now, China's interest in the Pacific Islands, what is happening there? Why should people care? What's the current state of it? Uh, and what should the U.S. response be? So what, what's happening is basically China is um, trying to get 10 out of, there are 14 island nations in the Pacific. 10 of them have been in discussions with the Chinese government to over a security agreement that includes uh, telecom infrastructure as well as police forces, you know, where China would send Chinese police forces to these islands. When it comes down to it, it really boils down to China trying to use the security agreement to essentially basically uh, completely envelop these countries under its influence uh, but a level of influence that is so tightly controlled that I would argue is actually akin to the Soviet Union's Warsaw Pact, you know, back uh, in the, the mid 20th century. China would basically be able to turn these countries into direct you know, satellite states that uh, would, it would give them an enormous amount of control over those countries. The reason that it's important for the U.S. and for Americans is because these countries are tiny uh, in terms of population and landmass, but in terms of territorial waters, they're actually enormous. Uh, the the area of in terms of you know square kilometers of territorial waters that these islands have is you know almost three times the size of of all of China. So it's an enormous amount. It's a huge swath of the Pacific. And it basically expands, it stretches China's influence uh, very close to Hawaii and Guam and, you know, uh, parts of the Pacific where we, you know, close to our shores. Um, and it, it would certainly be extremely detrimental to not only American influence in the Pacific, but also to freedom of navigation, to collective security in the Pacific. Um, and so I was very, very pleased to see that the um, uh, that ultimately the agreement failed and you know was not ratified by these countries for now. And the U.S. government should absolutely be working with those countries very closely to prevent these countries from signing on to this agreement. So to kind of bring this a little bit full circle, two big questions for you. So I'll start with the first one. We've talked a lot about some of the problems, right, that we're currently facing or some of the adversaries. Tell us a little bit about things that keep you optimistic and excited for the world. What, what are the positives that you're seeing or what is the movement in the right direction that you're seeing right now? 
So I think the two things that keep me, that give me an enormous amount of optimism uh, are on the one hand, the fact that I genuinely believe that the U.S. is on the right side of history and that the ideas that the U.S. represents, but really that our universal ideas are superior to authoritarianism uh, and, you know, the model that China is trying to advocate. I think if you look at, you know, China is a country that uh, where Xi Jinping boasts himself in front of the world, surrounded by masses of soldiers and tanks and military parades. And yet this is a man that is terrified of an ounce of free thought and words. And I think that really speaks for the force of, uh, you know, people's impulse to want to be free and express themselves, regardless of where they are. We have democracies, you know, that are in, in East Asia and every part of the world. And I think the yearning to be free is universal. It's not an American invention. And so the belief and self-confidence in what we stand for gives me a lot of optimism. I think we have the better narrative. The, the second thing that gives me a lot of optimism is the e- incredible ingenuity and creativity of America's entrepreneurial ecosystem. I'm always blown away by how resourceful and creative and tenacious American entrepreneurs are. And when I say American, I mean, you know, uh, Americans that include, you know, America is an idea as much as it's a country. And therefore, you know, the, the byproduct of that is uh, another thing that I find inspiring is the fact that you have entrepreneurs that come from everywhere in the world that come to the U.S. and, you know, build their dreams. And obviously, you know, the most iconic entre- entrepreneur right now, Elon Musk, is uh, someone that came here from South Africa. And I think that's one of the things that's truly beautiful about this country is it's a country where, you know, if you have big ideas and big dreams and, you know, uh, if you're slightly insane, uh, you can actually reach incredible heights. And, you know, this is a country that has an appetite for difference and weirdness and, and, you know, if people will be willing to, you know, fund you and, and go on incredible journeys with you. And I find that to be uh, a, a very unique, beautiful thing. The second question I had, and I think it'll be a great note to end on for all of our listeners who have been captivated by this and say, I want to do something to help. I want to do something to push the ball forward. What advice would you give them? How can people get involved here? The best way for people to get involved, I think, is, you know, our system is, for the better and for the worse, very responsive to public opinion. And so, you know, it sounds cheesy, but going to vote, valuing this issue as an issue when people go to vote, I think is important because it really will make a difference in terms of moving, uh, you know, where the way that policies actually end up materializing in Washington, but also um, being talking about this issue on Twitter actually helps a lot, you know, being vocal about this issue, uh, you know, our foreign policy elites pay very close attention to Twitter, Twitter, you know, is kind of where a lot of these debates happen. And so I think the more our uh, policymakers and our journalists see that people care about this issue and talk about it online, the more they will start to internalize that feedback and respond accordingly. 
and obviously the last piece of advice I would give is if you're thinking about starting a company, uh, you know, I would encourage anyone to try or, you know, go work for a tech company because uh, the tech industry is a pretty incredible space to work in. So uh, I, I'm a big uh, believer in the idea that, you know, people should take a leap and uh, take their chance. Well, come talk to Village Global specifically, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Go talk to Village Global. Awesome. Well, Jacob, uh, thank you so much for doing this with us. It's been a, a massive pleasure uh, and, you know, incredibly deep in detail. Thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. It was fun.